Hello, Bulldog Nation. This is Marie Bartlett, the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center at the Northeast Georgia History Center, and you are listening to our museum's podcast, Then Again. Almost two and a half years ago now, I put together a presentation about the history of the University of Georgia's football team, which you are about to hear an audio recording of now. But as you are aware, the last two years have been some of the most significant in UGA history as the Bulldogs have gone on to win back-to-back national championships. Therefore, it is fitting and necessary that we update this program to reflect the history that has been made. We will still, of course, begin at the beginning, as that is a very good place to start, with the formation of UGA's first football team in the 1890s. This program also includes a special interview with UGA's athletic history specialist, Jason Hasty which we also filmed in the October of 2020. If you would like to view this program, you can do so by going to the link in the description box and viewing this presentation on our YouTube channel. Hello and welcome Bulldog Nation, or those who are not a part of the Bulldog Nation. My name is Marie Walker and I am the Director of Education here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am also a very proud alumna of the University of Georgia. Just had my graduation last weekend uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I am extremely excited to be sharing with you about the history of UGA football. One of my favorite pastimes as a student was going to UGA games. I was there as much as they would let me, uh, as many as many games as I could get, I, I went to. So I, I am very excited to be sharing this incredibly biased but fact-based presentation. So we will be going over a little bit about UGA uh, football history, some of the traditions that are very ingrained in UGA football culture. There really is a whole whole football culture within every football team that they have out there. They have their own chants and cheers, and we're going to go into a little bit of the history behind that, as well as the athletic uh, team itself, as well as where on campus does football happen. So we're going to be covering a lot of everything. uh, As we say, it is in a nutshell, so we are not going to be getting into every single topic extensively, but we are going to give a grand overview. So the beginning. UGA did not always have a football team. As much as we think of it as being an integral part of the University of Georgia system as it is today, uh, UGA did not really have a football team until the 1890s. And UGA had its first game against Mercer on January 30th, 1892. Now, that is not what we generally think of as the beginning of football season, but that is how it went down. American football, as we know it, didn't really, it, it had been around in the 1800s is kind of a variation of rugby but it really did not start having rules and regulations and being played as a official college sport until the 1890s that's when we see like the real birth of American football as we know it today it's been around a lot longer but it didn't have all of the official rules and regulations that we think of so this was the first intercollegiate football game played in the deep south so when you think the deep south basically think SEC. Uh, That's usually the region that is referred to as the Deep South. So playing on what would be later called Hurdy Field, Georgia beat Mercer 50-0, which is very impressive. And a goat was actually used as the unofficial mascot for the team. So nowadays, UGA is known as the Bulldogs, but they weren't always. So there is actually a goat used as the first unofficial mascot of the UGA football team. So The second game was on February 20th, 1892 versus Auburn. And this started the Deep South's oldest rivalry, or as we call it in my house, my dad's team versus my team, Uh, which my my, my family does uh, very deeply participate in the Deep South's oldest rivalry. So this would be inaugurating this game, what would become known as the Deep South's oldest rivalry. And that is because this rivalry has been renewed annually since 1944 for a total of 125 games as of 2020 UGA and Auburn did indeed meet during 2020 which is a very odd football season as the SEC conference is only playing each other UGA has 163 out of those 125 games Auburn has 156 and they have tied for eight now you'll be doing math with me I'm sure they did not play every single year since 1892 and they have only done it annually since 1944. That is because World War I caused major disruption 
to universities' football programs. World War II also caused a large disruption in university football programs. So there were some years that were missed due to world wars. So that brings us to the um, <laughs> other rivalry that Georgia has, and that is Georgia versus Georgia Tech. So the first game between UGA and Georgia Tech was November 4th, 1893. They have met a total of 114 times. Georgia leads with 68 wins. Tech has 41, and they have tied five times. They did not play from 1917 to 1924. UGA did not have a team during World War I, and they mocked Tech's continuation of football during wartime. They actually had a parade in which they featured some floats that Tech found offensive because they still had a football team. And therefore, Tech suspended all, not just football, but all athletic association with UGA until they reached an agreement in 1925. That means they almost didn't play each other for 10 years. So, um, and that rivalry is usually called clean, old-fashioned hate. And you can tell that these teams really do not like each other. One of Georgia Tech's official fight songs, which is Up With the White and Gold. So, Up With the White and Gold was published in 1919. This is indeed a year where UGA did not play Tech because of World War I going on. Um, and that this is actually the year where the offensive parade happened, or the parade that Tech found offensive happened. And then I guess they wrote this song, perhaps in response. Uh, that would be a historian question. So this song features lines like, down with the red and black, which is UGA's official colors. Well, drop a battle axe on Georgia's head. These are the official lyrics, folks. And when we meet her, our team is sure to beat her. And I would like to point out that this fight song really only works against UGA, and UGA has no official references to Georgia Tech in any of their fight songs, even though sometimes the student section does and like to take the, the last line of glory, glory uh, to old Georgia and does indeed direct it at Tech. So let's talk about the field that UGA is playing on during some of these early games. So in 1911, Georgia moved its playing field from Hurdy Field to Sanford Stadium, where wooden stands were built. So right here we have a picture of what is Hurdy Field. It really was just kind of a, a green space or, or a muddy space sometimes on campus where teams would play. Nowadays, it is a lovely, they've beautified it. It has a lovely fountain and green space and benches and is really just an area for students to sit and study and enjoy each other's company outdoors. But during those days, that is indeed the football athletic field, which is right off of North Campus. Well, technically, it's on North Campus, but it's right off the, the academic side of the really, really old historic buildings. So Sanford wanted Georgia to have a venue that would equal Tech's, um, and the final straw actually came in 1927 when UGA's undefeated 9-0 team lost to 12-0 at Tech. So UGA didn't have a field where they could really host home games, and they, they just had a hurdy field. I wish they could host home games at, as we, we saw they, you know, that's where they played Mercer. But they always would go to Tech because Tech had, like, the nicer stadium and UGA. There, there is, there is, everyone knows, home field advantage is definitely a thing. And UGA wanted to have that home field advantage and therefore built a nicer stadium. So Stanford Stadium, it did not start out this big. So on October 12, 1929, a crowd of over 30,000 paid $3 per ticket to watch the Bulldogs under coach Harry Muir. And they beat Yale 15-0 in Stanford Stadium's dedication game. Now, the stadium would be expanded nine times since 1929, and it now seats about 90,000 people. So one of the defining features and traditions of Stanford Stadium is the hedges. So a lot of times UGA, when they start the game, it's a game between the hedges. So Stanford Stadium's hedges have encircled the field since the stadium's first game against Yale in 1929. So this inspiration came from a visit to the Rose Bowl, which UGA had played in. And the Rose Bowl, that stadium has rose bushes um, around the field. But that didn't work out for UGA, so we actually have privet hedges. And it works great for crowd control. There's actually a fence within the hedges, so it keeps the people who don't need to be off on the field off the field. 
and it also is it's uh, decorative and it's part of UGA's heritage and traditions. And six other SEC stadiums have actually copied UGA because it works really well for crowd control and it's nice to look at. So the red and black, those are UGA's colors. And we see the colors really come at the same time where football is coming into play. So in December of 1891, editors of the university's literary magazine selected the colors old gold, black, and crimson. So if you are also an SEC person, you will recognize some of those colors as being colors of other teams. So after 1893 football game against Tech, Dr. Hurdy, who Hurdy Field is named after, and also was one of the founders of the UGA football program, removed old gold as an official school color, and then the crimson has become what we know as the Georgia red. First, uh, Tech actually first used old gold on their uniforms as a proverbial slap in the face to UGA. Or so the story goes. So then that is how red and black became used and would be used for those uniforms. So the Georgia Bulldog, the team became was the team was actually called the Red and Black for a while. They didn't necessarily have an official mascot. There was a goat, which was the unofficial mascot. But it really wasn't until 1920, which um, they became known as the Wildcats for a very short period of time. But then an Atlanta Journal sports reporter. Morgan Blake took issue with the name, pointing out that it was already used by Kentucky State and Davidson. So Blake actually wrote in the paper, I had hoped that Georgia would adopt some original nickname that would stand out, adding that the Georgia Bulldogs would sound good because there is a certain dignity that about a bulldog as well as a ferocity. And the name is not as common as Wildcats and Tigers. Yale is about the only team I can call, recall right now with that name. Abraham Baldwin, who is one of the founders of UGA, was actually a graduate of Yale himself, and therefore there is also that connection between the, the Bulldogs. And a lot of times that's also a connection that people will point out as to why Georgia is the Bulldogs, because the founder had attended Yale and brought the mascot to Georgia with them. But also, if you're following this story... Um, uh, this story also accredits it to um, Blake, who one week after, because one week after Blake's story ran in the paper, Cliff Wheatley of the Atlanta Constitution referred to Georgia as the Bulldogs several times in his recap of the team's tie at Virginia, and then the new nickname quickly caught on, and then dogs began to appear. Like, literally, dogs were being brought to the stadium to basically be the mascot. <laughs> One of these dogs was what would be called Ugga, and that is UGA, which is a capital U. <laughs> and the UGA lineage began in 1956 when Cecilia Seiler dressed her bulldog in a children's size team jersey that she had made and took him to home games. So this is, she's not the first person to do this, but this is the first time that it really stuck because look at that face it's so cute so this is Uggle one and Uggle one patrolled the field for a decade before his son Uggle two took up the mantle and now i think we are on Uggle 10 so and, and it's all been of the same lineage of the same family who takes care of Uggle. Uggle has a wonderful home in savannah where he is pampered beyond belief and has his own car that takes him to UGA games. That is Georgia Red. He has his own suite in the hotel on Georgia's campus where he gets to take a nice bath and relax before going and sitting in his air-conditioned doghouse with a bag of ice for home games. So here are we have, we're going to show some videos of some more traditions of UGA football. So we have the Battle Hymn of the Bulldog Nations and the Redcoats Marching Band pregame. The battle hymn will be playing first. Glory, glory to old Georgia. Heroes have graced the field before you, men with hearts, bodies, and minds of which the entire Bulldog Nation can be justifiably proud. 
the tradition of unbridled excellence demonstrated by these individuals and many others spans more than a full century. as well as the narration of the the voice of the Georgia Bulldogs, which we will be talking about. So I I won't go into too much detail right now. We'll be covering the history of the battle hymn uh, of the Bulldog Nation and and the voice you just heard in just a moment. Next, we are actually going to see one of the staples of UGA football games, the Redcoat Marching Band, and uh, just a clip of their pre-show game. So there we just saw the Georgia Redcoat Marching Band, the Georgettes, the dance team, cheerleaders, Harry Dog, <laughs> all wonderful traditions that go along with UGA football because UGA football is not just a team. It is an entire culture of, in the university that surrounds the playing of the football game itself. So there we saw the forming of the arch, which is a symbol of the University of Georgia, as well as the state of Georgia. It is on the state seal. It's on the state flag. And it also, there is an arch that is on the UGA's campus, which is a symbol of the university that you are not allowed to walk through until you graduate. Otherwise, you won't graduate. So if you are ever on Broad Street when there's a class change, watch closely and you will see almost no one actually walk through the arch, even though people will go out of their way to not walk through the arch because you aren't, you aren't allowed to do that unless you graduate because otherwise you're not going to graduate or not going to graduate on time. And then the whole whole list of other terrible things that will happen to you if you walk through the arch before graduating. Um, <laughs> so the voice that we heard on that first video there was Larry Munson, who's the voice of the Georgia Bulldogs. He was American sports announcer and talk show host based in Athens, Georgia. 
he was known for his radio play-by-play of UGA games from 1966 to 2008. So he was a part of the Bulldog Nation for, for, he was a voice of the Bulldog Nation for a very, very long time. And he was extremely biased towards UGA. He didn't try to hide it. And he always referred to the Bulldogs as we. So whenever UGA did a play, that's we, we just did this or, or we did, we just scored um, <laughs> and, and really brought in that unity that you see in the Bulldog Nation, which is what the UGA fans call themselves. We can also credit Larry Munson for the term hunger down. So a lot of times in UGA lore and cheers and even billboards, you will see hunger down. And that means for UGA fan, that's really, uh, it was more in reference to uh, Larry Munson who would say, you know, we have this, you know, this next play, hunger down dogs, hunger down. And that means like, don't like get down and don't let them gain on you. Stay where you are and hold your ground, hunker down. And that term has gone for a, a long time. I, for, for me, I was thinking of this billboard that was in Athens. And it was, you know, during the, the pandemic. Well, we're still in a pandemic. But <laughs> earlier in the pandemic when I was still living in Athens. And there was a whole bulldog. It said, hunger down, bulldog nation. We'll get through this. So we also saw the Georgia Redcoat Marching Band. And that band began in 1905 as a section of the UGA military department. It actually was not formed specifically for the football team, but for now, nowadays it is. It's not a part of the military department, but rather indeed for the football team. The first non-military performance was at the 1906 Georgia Clemson baseball game. So a lot of times we don't think of marching bands for baseball anymore, but that, that is their first non-military engagement. And it grew after 1935 when alumni and athletic associations funded more instruments and equipment for the marching band because other schools' marching bands were coming and traveling with the football teams and putting on grand halftime shows. And UGA wasn't quite to that level yet in 1935. And that's when they saw like, oh, whoa, like this is this is becoming a thing in football now. We got to compete and we got to put more money and time and effort into this because we want to, you know, represent well. And that is uh, when the, the Red Coats started to flourish. They were actually known as the Georgia Marching Band up until around the 1950s. In the 1950s, that's when the name changed to the Red Coats. So the band was, we know today, was really formed by Roger Danskis and his wife Phyllis in 1955. And that's they are said to have gotten their name, the Georgia Redcoat Marching Band, from their red uniform jackets. So we also heard in that clip the battle hymn of the Bulldog Nation. And that's the fight song, Glory, Glory to Old Georgia, or sometimes it's spelled O-L-E, so Old Georgia. And it was composed by former bandsman and future head of the music department, Hugh Hodginson. And it actually debuted at a Georgia Tech game in the late 1900s. And it's to the tune of Battle Hymn of the Republic or sometimes John Brown's Body. It's a really popular tune that has been used for hymns and popular songs throughout the 1800s. And then in the early 1900s, that's when Hugh Hodgson decided to write the Georgia Fight song to the same tune, which is called Glory, Glory to Old Georgia. So another song that very much is a part of the, the, the Bulldog lore is Dooley's Junkyard Dogs, and that was performed and written by James Brown, who was a Georgia Bulldogs fan. And in 1975, he wrote and released a song called Dooley's Junkyard Dogs, honoring that year's team coach by Vince Dooley. And that year's team had a fantastic defense, which had earned the name Junkyard Dogs because they were so fierce and ferocious in this song was actually performed live during halftime in 1977 and it was a huge crowd pleaser so that brings us to Vince Dooley one of the most iconic head coaches uh, in Georgia football history he was the head coach from 1964 to 1988 he was the athletic director at UGA from 1979 to 2004 his record was 102 wins, 77 losses, and 10 ties. His team won six Southeast Conference titles and the 1980 National Championship game. So he, for a very long time, 
was the UGA coach. He had a fantastic record, as you can see there, and was just a part of the Bulldog team for, for such a long time. He became very, very integral to UGA football, and his defense was fantastic, and his story of just being this young coach with so much heart and, and for this game, really, he wasn't that much older than some of his players coming from, I believe he was a, an assistant at Auburn before he came here. So he had he never really been a head coach before, and it was just kind of a, well, let's see what happens, and it was magic. Actually, uh, so we have Sanford Stadium, right, that we talked about. That's the stadium where UGA plays. They have just named the field, the actual, like, grass between the hedges that the, the, the gridiron is on, Dooley Field, in September 7th, 2019. I was actually at that game, and it was very exciting. They played Julie's Junkyard Dogs, and they had him and his family come out onto the field and, and honored him uh, with the naming of the field, the actual field, Julie Field, in honor of him. So during Julie's time at the University of Georgia is when the football team became integrated. So UGA began integration in 1961, but the football team really did not begin to integrate until the 1970s. So Vince Dooley had signed King West, uh, Kingsbrew, and Appleby in December of 1970, and Pope joined the team as a walk-on. So when he signed them, freshmen were ineligible back then to actually play on the varsity team. So they played on the freshman team in 1971 and then they finally suited up for the varsity team in 1972 and that's usually the official date of integration for the football team is indeed 1972. Attempts had been going on earlier but either players were met with a hostile environment and decided to transfer or they decided to pursue other other avenues and didn't want to play for various reasons before that but so not to say that the men listed there are indeed the first to play on the varsity team, but they were not the first to, to attempt to play on the varsity team. But we, we honor them as, as saying that they are indeed the first to play on the varsity team in 1972. So one of the most famous players in UGA history is indeed Herschel Walker. So Walker played running back for UGA and is one of the best running backs of all time. He is fantastic just amazing to watch him to watch him play and in reruns and such so walker set the ncw ncaa freshman rushing record in 1988 so as a freshman he set the record which stood for a very very long time and had just recently been broken so in 1980 he was on the national championship team i actually think i instead of 88 i should have put 80 there um <laughs> sorry that was a typo on my part so it was not indeed 1988, it was 1980. So in 1980, he was on the national championship team because he's a fantastic running back. He scored so many touchdowns, gained so many yards, really was a, quite a leader on that team and really led them to the national championship and got them through the national championship. Of course, it's a team effort. The team that year was also fantastic, but also credit to Herschel Walker because he was a, a fantastic, fantastic player. And he was recognized in 1982 with the Heisman Trophy and the Maxwell Award winner that year. So two very distinguished football awards that were presented to Herschel Walker during his career at UGA. So national champions. So UGA claims two national championships. Uh, the first one being in 1942. They were national champions, or at least they claim that they are. So Georgia was chosen as champion by at least half of the recognized polls. So back then, they did things a little bit differently. It was so many polls rank you and then declare a winner, kind of. So half of them chose Georgia, and the Bulldogs knocked off nine consecutive appointments and ranked number one in the nation. And then Georgia earned a Rose Bowl bid after it beat Georgia Tech 34-0 in Athens to end the regular season. And then Georgia beat UCLA 9-0 in the Rose Bowl. So they had a fantastic season. But there is some controversy over if they were actually champions in 1942. Georgia does indeed claim that they are national champions. Ohio State also claims that they are the national champions for 1942. Their records look very similar. They were both ranked very high in different polls. So there is some controversy regarding and surrounding that one. But they are undisputed national champions in 1980. 
So the 1980s National Championships, the Bulldogs beat Notre Dame 17-10 in the Sugar Bowl to finish 12-0 and claim an undisputed national championship. So notable contributors during the season include Herschel Walker, who we talked about just a little bit earlier, Buck Blue, and Lindsey Scott. So conference champions. UGA has only won two national championships, but they have been conference champions numerous times as well. So Georgia has won a total of 15 conference championships, 10 outright and five shared. So the school's 13, and this is just in football, national championships and conference championships. They have won numerous, numerous, numerous other awards in various sports, but today we are just talking about football. So the schools has won 13 Southeastern Conference or SEC championships and ranked it, that ranks UGA second in all time in SEC history, tied with Tennessee and only behind Alabama for SEC wins or SEC championship wins. So here we have all of the years that UGA has indeed won SEC championships, the most recent being 2017 for a total of 13. So the way football has been organized um, into different conferences and such, there are actually two other because they have been conference champions 15 times. There were two before 1942 when the SEC didn't exactly exist as it did today. So it was a technically like in a different conference and then football reorganized itself in the middle early parts of the 1940s um late 1930s so they actually did win two more conference championships but it wasn't like sec so now we have a wonderful interview with jason hasty who is the uga athletic history specialist and he is going to go into even more detail about some of the subjects that we have already covered my name is Jason Hasty, and I'm the UGA Athletics History Specialist for the Hargret Rare Book and Manuscript Library, which is part of the UGA Libraries. The Hargret Library is where the archives of the University of Georgia are kept, and the archives of the Athletic Association are part of that. It's a pretty substantial collection. Uh, it's uh, several hundred boxes worth of UGA sports history going back from now, uh, from recent acquisitions from 2019 all the way back to the earliest item we have is from 1894. So it is a very extensive archive. And the thing is, it's open to the public. It's all cataloged. It's available for research. It's available for study. It's also available for fans to come in and just look at old pictures or programs if they want to do it. And it's not just football. It's, um, you know, tennis, track basketball, it's pretty much all the sports here at UGA. Athletics in the 1880s and 1890s, collegiate athletics, because that's really the only type of athletics, organized athletics that you had outside of professional baseball. Collegiate athletics were entirely different in conception than what we have today. Today, obviously, it's a, it's a very organized enterprise, and it is an enterprise that um, is a major part of what the universities do. But back in the early days, it was really something more akin to, you know, club sports or recreational league sports of today. It was something that was organized by students for students with very little, if any, administrative support from the universities. And it was something that students were doing as a pastime, just something to fill their time after class. In the late 19th century, you have uh, more of a movement towards uh, physical culture, where people are becoming more and more interested in developing their bodies and seeing that the development of the body is an essential part of, of a well-rounded education. And so students were picking up on that and they were interested in becoming more athletic or participating in athletics. And baseball was kind of the king of sports at that time. Baseball was, you know, the most popular sport on any campus, really. But there was this new sport that was coming along. It developed out of rugby, which, of course, was an English game. But it developed here in many different ways, kind of a gradual evolution of this kind of violent game into something a little more refined and playable, something with a few more rules. And so students picked up on it. They liked it. They liked the energy of it. Uh, spectators liked it because it was, it was a novelty but also it was something that uh, had a great deal of excitement and anticipation and 
Uh, it wasn't as maybe slow as a baseball game. So there was a lot of kind of frenetic running back and forth. And so fans picked up on that. The earliest organized sport at Georgia, and I, I believe probably the earliest that was really played here, even before it became organized, was baseball. Baseball became incredibly popular across the country right after the Civil War. One of the things is that, that the Civil War did is expose baseball to a much wider audience. It was a fairly regional game from the Northeast. But of course, as you know, men went to the armies, um, baseball became more popular and more well-known. And so after the war ended, people back home picked up on it and it became popular. So guys were playing baseball and it didn't require a lot of equipment or skill. I mean, you can pick up a bat and a ball and start flailing away and you get yourself a baseball game. So pick up a couple of guys after class and that'll be it. Organized intercollegiate baseball started at UGA in 1886. And that's the very first intercollegiate sport here. Beyond that, tennis was very popular here very early on in the 1880s. The fraternities would organize uh, fairly elaborate tennis tournaments amongst themselves, and they would, you know, sometimes play other, you know, tennis team or tennis leagues around town. So tennis was really popular. And of course, to this very day, UGA has an, an outstanding tennis tradition uh, and has won six national championships and 41, I believe, SEC titles in tennis. So it's an amazing tradition to this day. But track and field was also one of the earliest sports. And it really grew out of something that what most of us did as kids, which was field day. And it's kind of hard to believe as it is now, but back in the 1880s and 1890s, they would have field day at college. Um, everybody would get out of class and they'd go over to the field and run and jump and compare scores. And it was kind of a big deal for everyone to have this field day in the spring. And that's, again, something you kind of associate with little kids or elementary school now, but it was definitely part of what they were doing then and they took it seriously. And so track and field was, was one of the earliest sports here as well. There, there really wasn't a formal stadium until uh, 1911, uh, when the first version, when the, our first Sanford field was built, uh, that was in 1911. Before that, we had a space on campus called Hurdy Field, and it's still there today. It's a really nice little park. But back in the early days, it really was just kind of a rocky, muddy, dirty field. And that's where all the athletic events on campus would happen. And in fact, before the first football game, players actually had to go out and try to remove as many of the rocks from the field as they could. So it wasn't exactly a, a, a grand space for any kind of sport, but they made do and they, that was what they had. So that's what they made do with. Hurdy Field, there's actually a state historical marker there indicating that it was the first place that uh, football was played, organized football was played in the state of Georgia and really in the deep South. Uh, and that was in 1892. But before that, you did have guys who were out there playing a, a much more rudimentary version of football, uh, along with baseball and just running and jumping and wrestling, whatever they're doing. But they did heavy football and they would kind of organize into teams and play around a much cruder sort of game than what came later on. But that's where they did it on, on Old Hurdy Field. Football was so different then than it is now. And the way that it was covered and the press was so different than it is now that you don't really have as many big names from the earliest teams. Probably the first great player that we had was a man named Harold Ketron. He played around 1903 uh, in that time period. And he was an offensive lineman. He was kind of the first Georgia player who was recognized as being a great player around the South. And that was pretty common for all, all colleges. They didn't really, players didn't get the press that they got now. So it wasn't until a little later on in the development of the sport that you start seeing individual players being touted as great. Georgia's first All-American, though, uh, and really truthfully first great player was a man named Bob McWhorter. Bob McWhorter, there were several McWhorters who played for Georgia through the years, even into the, into the more modern era, but he was a running back. And he was an, an outstanding player. He was the first player from the Deep South recognize on the national all-american teams which are a list of teams that were put together by walter camp who uh, worked for yale 
Uh, so Bob McWhorter was a truthfully special player. He actually, and, and the records are always a little fuzzy for this time period, but we do believe he actually scored uh, more touchdowns in his career than Herschel Walker did. So he was a, a great, great player. And of course, UGA has a great tradition or long tradition of great running backs, including Herschel Walker and up to Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle, Todd Gurley. And Bob McWhorter was the very first of those great running backs. So the, the very first game here was in January 1892. We played Mercer. It was the very first game in the Deep South. And of course, in those days, teams didn't have mascots. So not formal mascots like we have now. So the day of the game, a man brought his goat to the game and he dressed it up and he put a black blanket over it uh, that had UG in red embroidered on it. They had a hat on the goat with red and black streamers and they paraded the goat around the field and everybody had a good laugh. It was a cute little, you know, it's a cute goat. I mean, and so the second game we ever played was in Atlanta against Auburn. And they actually took the goat on the train with them. They apparently had to get a special pass to take livestock onto the train in the passenger compartment. So they took the goat around to the game in Atlanta. Then they did the same thing. They kind of paraded it around the field. It got a good laugh. And that was kind of the end of the goat. The, the goat passed into campus lore at that point. I'm not even really sure what happened to the goat. There are some people who say that the goat was barbecued and eaten, which seems like a horrible end. I, we actually do have one picture of the goat, and it's a small, tiny little thing, so I'm not too sure about that story, but there is one picture of the goat. Unfortunately, it's not a picture of him wearing the, the hat and streamers and all that, but so that was the goat. Beyond that, Georgia was kind of strange that we really didn't have a mascot until 1920. So from 1892 to 1920, we really didn't have an official mascot. We were mostly known as the red and black. Sometimes we were known as the crimson and black because our jerseys were more crimson in those days than red. We were known as the Athenians, the Georgians. There's at least one newspaper account that I've run across that refers to Georgia as the Huskies, which is kind of interesting. But we didn't have a mascot, a true mascot until 1920 when we officially adopted the Wildcat as a mascot. So for the very first half of the 1920 football season, we were the University of Georgia Wildcats, which has been very forgotten, uh, just completely forgotten. But it was only for a few months that we were the Wildcats. Starting in November, November of 1920, we adopted the Bulldog as a mascot. We played a great game against Virginia, who was one of our earliest rivals. Uh, we played them in Charlottesville. And one of the, uh, we ended up playing them to a 0-0 tie, but it was a great game regardless. And our players, uh, we were kind of referred to as playing like Bulldogs several times in a newspaper account of that. And our players actually voted to change the mascot from the Bulldog, or from the Wildcat to the Bulldog, partly because of the newspaper coverage, but partly also because they felt that there were too many teams in the South that had a wildcat or a tiger or something like that as a mascot. And they wanted to differentiate themselves a little bit from that. So from then on, we have been the Bulldogs. Now, there were several live Bulldogs over the years, uh, Butch, Mr. Angel, but none of them really took until the Siler family brought started bringing their dog their family dog who became known as Ugga to the games in the late 1950s and Dan McGill who was Georgia's uh, sports information director and head tennis coach and just kind of an all-around UGA legend Dan McGill decided that Ugga this family dog at the Silers would become our official live mascot so that's kind of how we got Ugga now as for records that we do have photos of the goat as I mentioned which I, like, I think is the only photo of the goat. It's the only one that I know of. We do have photos of some of the earliest mascots, uh, like Mr. Angel and Butch, who I mentioned. But we also have the record, the Siler family, a couple of years ago, donated their family archives to us. So we do have a very extensive archive of materials relating to 
Uga and that mascot and the mascots we've had through the years. So, uh, and again, that's available for people to look at if they want to see it. Were there any like really close games that stand out to you in, in UGA football history? The one that comes to mind immediately is the win over Yale during the dedication, of, which was the dedication game for Sanford Stadium in 1929. Yale in those days was a national power. Most of the Ivy League schools had tremendous football programs and it really dominated college football from the, from the very beginning into the post-World War I era. Yale was one of the premier programs and we had a really good rivalry with Yale for about 10 years. A lot of people don't remember that, but we did. We played them pretty consistently for about a 10-year period. But we usually played them or always played them in New Haven. Yale at that time didn't travel to other teams' campuses. So we funded and built Sanford Stadium. It opened in uh, October 1929. And we convinced Yale to come south to be the first opponent in Sanford Stadium. And this was a big deal for, for everyone involved. It was you know, one of the traditional powerhouses coming into the South for the very first time, Georgia and Yale, which again, had a little tradition there. Uh, and so everyone was very excited. We did beat Yale that day, which was kind of the first big win in Sanford Stadium. And it was, it really secured Georgia's place in kind of the upper echelon of college football powers. Probably the next one that really jumps out to me is the Rose Bowl win over UCLA on January 1, 1943. Georgia's team in 1942 was outstanding, just a truly outstanding team. We played, we were led by Frank Sinkwich, who won the Heisman Trophy that year, as well as Charlie Trippi, who was one of the greatest athletes UGA has ever had. We went out to Los Angeles to play UCLA, UCLA in the Rose Bowl. It was the first time we'd ever played in the Rose Bowl. And we beat a tough UCLA team that day. And again, that was maybe not an ex a victory many people expected, even though Georgia did have a great team. Intersectional matchups in those days were a little more rare than they are today. And so people didn't quite know what to expect when these two program programs got together. The other thing that that did was it ended up, Georgia ended up being the, winning the consensus national title for 1942, which is a little, takes a little explanation, but basically various polls were used to determine the national title. The Associated Press poll was the poll of record and Ohio State won the Associated Press poll. They were ranked number one at the end of that season. Georgia won the majority of the rest of the polls that were being, or that were recognized by the NCAA at that time period as being official polls. And so much later on in the early 1980s, we decided you know, we won the national championship in 1942, even if we didn't win the Associated Press Bowl. So we went ahead and claimed that national championship. And speaking of national championships, probably the greatest win in Georgia history was uh, 1710 over Notre Dame in the, in the Sugar Bowl, January 1, 1981. Uh, Herschel Walker led us to a win over Notre Dame, and that completed an undefeated, untied season. And that was our one on the or one truthfully undisputed national title was that game there so there have been so many more though uh, the rose bowl went over uh, oklahoma a couple of years ago as a standout uh, and actually uh, talking about the archives sony michelle scored the winning touchdown in the rose bowl january 19 uh, 2018 and we have the game ball we have the ball that he used to score the winning touchdown and the gloves he wore uh, when he scored the winning touchdown here in the archives, he donated those to us. So that's a pretty neat, pretty neat artifact to have. So, yeah, when you talk about the tr rich tradition of Georgia sports, we have so many great wins over over our history. I picked out three, but there are a dozen more that I could have mentioned. Sure. Well, our first probably great coach was Pop Warner, Glenn Pop Warner. Many people might be familiar with his name because Pop Warner football is little, you know, little kids football. Pop Warner had a, an amazingly long career. He was a true innovator in college football. Uh, he played at Cornell, and we hired him basically right out of college to come down and coach us. He coached us for two years, um, 
95 and 1895 and 96 and he led us to a an undefeated 4-0 regular season in 19 I mean 1896 uh, which was one of only three undefeated seasons we've had probably one of the greatest coaches that many people don't think about is a man named Alex Cunningham Alex Cunningham coached us from 19 uh, 1911 until right after World War one so 1911 through 1919 but we took two years off because of the of the World War One, he really solidified Georgia's football program. Georgia had been up and down from the time that Pop Warner left in 1896 until Alex Cunningham arrived, and there were some very bad years. And Georgia football had really fallen into a hard a hard spot on campus. It wasn't really very popular. We weren't winning. We were having trouble retaining players, retaining coaches, and uh, Alex Cunningham came in and really turned the program around. And a lot of what UGA's football program today is can really be dated to Alex Cunningham's arrival. He was an outstanding coach, produced winning seasons his whole time here, and really got us going forward. Vince Dooley is really the greatest coach we've ever had. Vince Dooley course, played at Auburn. He had begun his coaching career as uh, on Auburn staff, Auburn's football uh, staff, and had coached their freshman team. In late 1963, we hired a man named Joel Eaves as our athletic director. Joel Eaves had been a head basketball coach at Auburn and also coached on their football staff. And he brought in Vince Dooley to coach the football team. Again, it was kind of a moment where Georgia football was in a hard way, we'd gone through some bad years and really needed someone to come in and stabilize the program. Vince Dooley was very young. He was 32 years old when he came here to UGA to be our head football coach. And he stabilized the program, uh, led us to six SEC championships, one national championship, coached one Heisman Trophy winner, and ended up his coaching career at the end of the 1988 season with 201 wins, which is the best in Georgia history. And at the time that he retired, he was in the top top 10 all time in winning, or winning number of wins over a career. So just an outstanding coach, really contributed to the culture of Georgia football uh, and Georgia athletics as a whole, because he was also our athletic director from 1979 through 2004. So, so much of what Georgia athletics is today, not just football, is owed to Vince Dooley. And of course, you have Kirby Smart, who has gotten off to a terrific start here in his first years as a Georgia football coach. And I expect that we will be seeing a lot more great wins from him as time goes on. I'm, I'm curious about the, the changes that we can see in UGA football through the collections, especially when it comes to the beginning of seeing black and other non-white players join the team. So talk to us about when the football team became integrated. Sure. And that's always an interesting, uh, interesting subject to look at when you're, especially when you're dealing with Southern teams is how they approach integration, how they approach bringing in non-white players onto their football teams. That barrier really started to break down in the mid 1960s. Before that, you know, people of color really didn't have a chance to play on especially Southern teams. And so many great athletes would go to Northern teams. Michigan State, for example, would recruit heavily amongst African-American and non-white athletes in the South. Uh, Notre Dame did as well. And, but those barriers started slowly breaking down in the mid-1960s. And many coaches understood that it was inevitable that teams would start to integrate sooner rather than later. But of course, there were many political barriers to doing that. Most coaches wanted to recruit non-white players because they, uh, they want to recruit the best players regardless of who they were. They just want to win because that's what they're paid to do. But there were political barriers to doing so. State politics, state, pol state politicians were reluctant to allow state universities to start recruiting non-white athletes. Coach Dooley tried for several years to bring in a non-white 
player to integrate our team. Starting in 1966, he started his first year coaching was 19, his first season was 1964. Two years later, he wanted to recruit and bring in uh, an African-American player. So that's a fairly quick turnaround for Coach Dooley. Coach Dooley, I will say, was uh, had been in the Marine Corps and had he was an officer in the Marine Corps and had commanded an integrated unit. And so he was accustomed to dealing with an integrated team, so to speak. So that was not an, a barrier that he had to break through personally. It was difficult to bring in, for UGA, it was difficult to bring in the first African-American athlete. A couple of men tried out for the team. One man was poised to get a scholarship in 66, and he decided he wanted to go to school in Minnesota instead. His name was John King. Then we had a man named Ken Diaz uh, walk onto the team, was excellent. Again, would have gotten a scholarship, but he decided to focus on his education. Uh, he became a lawyer here in Athens, a uh, very well-respected lawyer here in Athens. The other issue that UGA had is that the integration of our local Athens high schools was very difficult and very problematic. And UGA at that time really recruited heavily from the local Athens high schools. And so many non-white players, African-American players, really didn't want to go through a difficult integration process again. And they didn't especially want to do so on their own. So what we decided to do was to bring in a group of African-American players so that they wouldn't have to be singled, so not one person would have to be singled out. And also they would have a built-in support network of their peers who they could go to and speak to if, you know, if they had issues or, and also just to be amongst people like themselves. So we brought in a group of, of five men uh, in 1970. Now they were not allowed to play because they were freshmen and NCAA's, NCAA rules at the time prohibited freshmen from playing any sport. You just couldn't play football if you're a freshman. So they were brought in in 70. They had to wait until 71 to really get on the team. So we had them in 70, but they had to wait just because of NCAA rules. There were some incidents, as there always are, people who were backwards in their thinking. But overall, it was a positive experience for them. And, and all of those men have remained close to UGA to this day and, and are very proud of their. And the UGA, of course, is very has honored them several times and publicly acknowledged them many times as well. Our first two African-American athletes, so we're not into football. The first African-American athlete at UGA was a man named Maxie Foster. He was a track athlete and he ran track and field. He didn't, he was not on scholarship just because of the way that scholarships work. Our first scholarship African-American player was a man named Ronnie Hogue. He played basketball and sadly enough, Mr. Hogue died just a couple of weeks ago. He was our first scholarship African-American athlete. He was also, at the time that he came here, the only African-American to live in McWhorter Hall, which was the athlete's dorm at the time. It was all athletes, so you can't have an athlete-only dorm now. But he was the only African-American to live in that dorm for a little while and apparently was reluctant maybe to, to do that. But the support of the other athletes here really convinced them that it was a good idea. So the integration of UGA athletics proceeded fairly smoothly. Like I said, there were some incidents here and there, but overall it was a positive experience for everyone. One of my top priorities is to document the experiences of people of color in our athletics. And that is a conversation I've had with the Athletic Association. They're very supportive of that. They want that to happen. So that is something that we, I'm trying to document more and more. Next year, for example, it was supposed to happen this year, but it, because of the pandemic, it got pushed to next year. I'll actually be, do, be doing a large-scale museum exhibit here at the Russell Building uh, on the UGA campus about the integration of athletics at UGA. So we want to bring these out. We want to honor these people who did that, and we want to make sure that their experiences are documented in the archives as well. And the document to document the experience of women as well, and then women's athletics, 
we want this to be an inclusive archive and we want all of our student athletes to be, or to feel that they are represented here. So the pandemic, wow, uh, that has thrown a wrench in everyone's plans, hasn't it? We are working with the athletic department to document this experience. Uh, this is a huge moment for athletics. We are working with them to document seasons that were interrupted, seasons that have completely changed, to document the experiences of athletes and coaches during this time, because they've had to completely rethink how they do everything that they do, how they compete, how they coach, how they bring in recruits. It has just completely affected everything. So trying to document that, also trying to document the efforts by UGA's athletes to bring light to racial and social injustice as well. That's very important to document. These are things that our student athletes are speaking out on, and I want to make sure that those are represented in the archives as well. So, so there's, a, there's always something for us to do. The archives is not a static collection. It's always growing. It's always evolving. It's always changing. And, you know, we're trying to make sure, certain that it is responsive to the times we're in as well. And lastly, um, so if people want to utilize the archives, is there a way to do that online or a safe way to go to the archives, like you were saying, and, and really view the collections for themselves? Absolutely. We don't have much online. Just with a collection of this magnitude, it's difficult to put, to digitize everything or to photograph and make that available online. We do feature things through our social media, Hargret at Hargret Library at UG, at uh, Twitter or on Facebook. And uh, we do have a couple of digital exhibits uh, as well, looking at the early history of UGA athletics. Probably the best way though is to come in. People can always contact me, search UGA, you know, search for me on Google and they'll find my contact information pretty easily. But also we are very, making sure that it, visiting the archives is a safe experience for everyone. We are open Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. We're closing at lunch, one to noon to one, to clean everything and to sanitize our reading rooms. But otherwise, the archives are open and people can come in here. I am always happy to sit down and work with people to find things to look at, uh, or they can browse our, our collections online. Again, just Google UGA Hargret Library, and they can search the Athletic Association archives from our finding aids. So, we're trying to make as, as normal it as an experience as we can. So uh, if people have an interest, they're absolutely welcome to come in and we'll set them up with something to look at. Yes, thank you so much, Jason. We really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll be back uh, to the staff at the Hargrit because y'all have just been so so generous with your time and, and all of the really fascinating information that y'all have. And we definitely want the public to know about it. So thank you so much for joining me today. Sure. Well, thank you for reaching out and, and, um, and bringing in to be part of this, and I hope that everything goes well for you. In the original presentation, we did not focus much on Kirby Smart, but since given recent events, it is incredibly crucial to dive into the history of Kirby Smart's time as head coach at UGA. Kirby Smart's first season of coaching UGA football was in 2016, the same year I began freshman classes at the university. His first season was a record of eight wins and five losses. Not too bad, but definitely not great. One of the hardest losses was to Vanderbilt by one point during our homecoming game, and we also lost to Tech that year. I remember walking around campus and seeing our school's newspaper, the red and black, have the headline, Not Such a Smart Decision questioning whether Kirby Smart was the right choice for the head coach of the Bulldogs. But in the following years, it became very obvious that he was indeed a smart choice. In 2017, UGA went 13-2, and UGA won the SEC championship. They went on to win the Rose Bowl, but ultimately lost to Alabama while playing for the national title. It was quite heartbreaking. In 2018, UGA went 11-3. They had a good year, but didn't make it to the playoffs, ending the season with a Sugar Bowl win. In 2019, UGA went 12-2, but didn't make it to the playoffs again. But, again, they won the Sugar Bowl. 2020 was a really weird season due to COVID, but the dogs were ready in 2021, and UGA had a great season. The only game they lost was to Alabama in the SEC Championship, but they still got a spot in the playoffs. They won the Orange Bowl against Michigan, and then in a rematch of that year's SEC Championship game, the Dogs beat Alabama for the national title. 
It was the first time UGA had won a national title since 1980. It had been 41 years since the Dogs had achieved that level of victory, and the Bulldog Nation went wild. I'm not sure if Hollywood screenwriters could have written a better story. A coach who had spent his college career playing for UGA returned to his home stadium for his first ever head coaching position and won the national championship with a quarterback who had been a walk-on his freshman year. The quarterback for the last two seasons that has led the Dogs to two national championships is Stenson Bennett IV, who has now cemented his legendary status among the Bulldog greats. Stetson Bennett was a decent quarterback in high school. He was a two-star recruit at graduation and had one football scholarship offered to play at Middle Tennessee State. But Bennett found himself at UGA, and he was a walk-on to the football team during his freshman season in 2017, but did not get any playing time. So he transferred to Jones County Junior College to get some more playing experience before transferring back to UGA in 2019. He did not get the starting quarterback position until 2021. And people had doubts about if he was up to the task. But he has always delivered, earning him the nickname, the mailman. UGA has now gone on to win another championship with an absolutely perfect season. Zero losses. And they absolutely commanded the field during the championship game given one of the largest leads and largest discrepancy in points given in any single bowl game ever. UGA has truly become a football powerhouse in the past couple of years, and Kirby Smart now has more wins in his first seven seasons than any other coach in SEC history. Under Smart's leadership, the Dogs have won 81 games, five SEC East titles, two SEC championships, and two national championships. And I cannot wait to see what the future holds for the Bulldogs. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.